when you really can get something accomplished, where you can really bring your uh, constituents' needs to county government, whether it's just answering questions from constituents about a stop sign or whatever it is, or, you know, repaving roads or improving parks or drainage or whatever it is, mm -hmm. you really feel like, wow, government matters. You know, apart from all of the ridiculous politics and apart from all of the anger and, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. you can actually make concrete differences in people's lives that make their lives easier and safer and better. That is former Nassau County Executive Laura Curran describing government for the people, by the people, more important than ever on the county level, and just one of the topics we get into today on Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast. Welcome to Nassau, listeners, like you've never seen it before. This is Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast, featuring up-close conversations with the inventors, investors, executives, and entrepreneurs fueling the dynamic Long Island innovation economy. Spark is a production of Innovate Long Island, the home of exceptional thought in Nassau and Suffolk and beyond. Today's episode is made possible by the generous support of Brandtelling, where professional marketing, communications, and brand building always starts with an interesting story. Laura Curran is another of those podcast guests I find personally inspiring. Like me, she began her professional life as a reporter at a weekly newspaper. Unlike me, she springboarded from that humble beginning to very impressive heights as a journalist and as the first woman to serve as Nassau County Executive. Laura was born in Canada and raised, well, pretty much all over the world, and we'll get back to that. She worked as a reporter at both the New York Daily News and the New York Post before starting a successful political run, a seat on her local school board, four years on the Nassau County Legislature, and then, in 2017, her biggest win, succeeding Ed Mangano as Nassau's ninth ever executive. Following a current federal inmate into the county executive's office is a low bar to clear. Mangano, as many listeners will remember, was a corrupt fraudster, ultimately sentenced to 12 years in prison on fraud and bribery charges. But Laura proved to be more than worthy of the office. First, she had to win a free-swinging Donnybrook of a campaign against former Mineola mayor and state senator Jack Mortens, who knows how to fight in the mud. Once in office, she hired experienced professionals and rolled out a progressive agenda prioritizing new property tax assessments and property tax relief, confronting Nassau's opioid and gang threats head-on, and mandating county government reforms, among other things, an executive order preventing local party leaders and political donors from holding county leadership positions. That's all good stuff, not a lot to disagree with. But Laura, alas, would serve only one term in the county executive's office. Thank you, Todd Kaminsky, and we'll get back to that, too. Since leaving office, Laura has returned to her journalism roots, appearing on multiple television and radio news programs, hosting her own New York radio show, and even dabbling in podcasts. With these front-row perspectives, she continues to study the evolution of modern American government and modern American media, and we are absolutely thrilled to pick her brain on all of the above. You're Canadian, Laura Curran. I knew you were too nice for American <laughs> politics. 
<laughs> and you're you're at least nice enough to join us today. So thank you for that uh, and for sharing your stories. Welcome to Spark. Greg, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I was born in Canada uh, and I became a citizen of this country, which is how I could run for office because I couldn't even run for school board if I weren't a citizen. So well, that's true. Uh, I made the for... choice. I made the decision to become a part of this wonderful nation. You ever look back and say, oh, man, I, I could still be with them hosers up there, eh? Well, I don't. I mean, I've really embraced America as my country, and most of my parents are here. Most of my, mm -hmm. you know, family is here. So mm -hmm. I, I consider myself, you know, I'm still a little bit Canadian, but I really am American. You know, now I'm that I know American. it, I can hear it. I can hear it in your voice now that I know it. Or it, I might be, subtle, I might be projecting there. that, you know. Uh, yeah, well, like I, I said, uh, so many interesting experiences and different perspectives for you to share. Uh, but we always start in the way back machine. And, and for you, way, way back to your earliest childhood, uh, you were born in Ontario. Uh, mm -hmm. But before you were 18, you lived in Belgium and Florida mm -hmm. and L.A. Mm -hmm. and Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. and even Western Long Island's beautiful five towns. Maybe. I have. Yeah. Uh, what were you? Was your family on the run or something? It's nothing that glamorous. What are you hiding romantic. from? It's actually very boring. My father was a retail guy. And so, you know, he was sort of climbing the corporate ladder, becoming, getting higher and higher jobs in corporate America. Mm -hmm. And that's why we moved around a lot. We sort of followed him in his career. He ended up being CEO of Caldor, if anyone remembers the beautiful I remember Caldor. Caldor. Wow. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. Belgium? Yeah, Belgium was like a great opportunity for him from Canada. My parents got married young. They had kids young, so they wanted to. They're very adventuresome, and they neither mm. of them had left the country. Moved mm. to Belgium, started a whole life there, and then, of course, you know, on we went. Eight, sure. eight schools by the time I was in ninth grade. I always kind of admired people uh, to some degree that had that sort of, I want to say wanderlust, because that sounds sort of aimless. But anyone who was fearless enough to just go where the where the tide took them. Uh, I yeah. always sort of admired that quality in people. Well, and the one, you know, it was difficult in some ways, well, in a lot of ways as a kid, you know, learning new languages, always being the new kid. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing that it helped me in life, and I think it helped me in both journalism and politics, is I'm very comfortable talking to any kind of person. You, I feel like you could drop me in with any kind of group and I would mm -hmm. find a way to make a connection with them because that's what I had to do as a kid. All right. Uh, well, now it's 1989 and you're fresh out of Sarah Lawrence College with a liberal arts yeah. degree. Uh, who are you? What are you what are you thinking? I guess I'm a typical uh, post-college questioner wondering what I'm going to do with my life. So I lived in Paris. I went to the Sorbonne for a semester um, learning French and French civilization. And then uh, I'm I moved to Queens. I moved to Long Island City before it was cool. And I got a job as a social worker and I did that for a year and did a couple of other jobs. But my first journalism job, very exciting, yeah, uh, was working at the Brooklyn Heights Press as their only reporter, having never taken a journalism class. I mean, I wrote a lot in college, but I didn't study journalism. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of had to figure it out. And I did. And you I know, loved it. And then, I'm going to you know, say, went right, on to the Daily News. I'm gonna, oh, I, that's awesome. We're going to get back to that in a second. But I've known a lot of social workers and I've known a lot of reporters. I do not believe I've ever met a social worker turned reporter. Yeah. That's, that's well, a, that's I don't want to over, I don't want to overemphasize my social work career. It was exactly one year, uh, but it was actually, you know, it was great training for mm. reporting on New York City because my job was to recertify foster homes 
for uh, mm. a, an agency called the Catholic Guardian Society. So I went into so many neighborhoods, into mm. so many homes. I heard so many stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was all on public transportation. And it was mm. uh, it was an amazing education in how things really work and in a lot of dysfunction as well. And again, dropped into a bunch of different situations and scenarios totally. with a lot of different people and uh, able, yeah. able to communicate effectively with them, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Me having to make connections. Okay. Well, I'm not sure that uh, writing for the Daily News counts as effective communication, but it is certainly communication. Uh, so it was, a, it was a weekly in Brooklyn and then the mm -hmm. Daily News. What, what was your beat at the Daily News? When I first got there, I was... In actually in the TV section, um, this is a funny story. I don't know if I've ever told this publicly, but uh, I, I happened, I just got an interview just by luck. And the guy who interviewed me asked if I knew this program, this graphic design program called Quark. Quark. And I said, oh, sh sure, I know Quark. I didn't know Quark. He's like, uh -huh. okay, you're hired. Come on Monday. So I found a weekend course in like some third floor walk up somewhere in manhattan yeah and i crash coursed the quark right so i came in on monday and i could do the job uh see of I course today someone design. would someone would jump online for the weekend and figure it out or watch a youtube video yes. that those resources were not available to you this would be around right. somewhere in the early 90s right so you had to early, find you had to actually 90s. find a quark class and, I did. Uh, I had to be very resourceful in yes, the last. Yes. It's a, and then what I really wanted to do was reporting. So I would do reporting um, for the Brooklyn section mm. on event that I had a familiarity with Brooklyn on my own time. And that's how I got to become a reporter. That's, that's my little story. This is all interesting because a lot of the things in your early career, this social work job and a graphic design job and a reporting job, these are things that Nowadays and then too, people actually went to school specifically to learn those things. Yeah. Uh, before, yeah, and before I did it all with a bachelor's. And you did it all with a bachelor's in liberal arts. Got a liberal arts degree. Um, the best. Well, you so you say you covered Brooklyn for the Daily News. That's kind of a young reporter's dream beat also. I mean, that's oh my God. a lot of reporters yeah. in college would say, damn, that was your first full-time reporting job was covering Brooklyn for a, a diverse yeah. metropolis for a big city daily yeah. tabloid. Uh, was it as exciting as it sounds? It was amazing. It was. And that's when the Daily News was a real force. Unfortunately, they don't even mm. have a newsroom anymore. It's so sad what's happening to journalism, but that's another yeah. story. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. So, and this was in the mid-90s, and uh, Brooklyn was a very different place. I mean, you would go to Bushwick. I remember going to Bushwick to cover a story about hypodermic needles mm. that junkie used that they in the left in the park. And that was the story. Now, Bushwick, you go to cover an opening of a boutique or some mm -hmm. fancy restaurant or whatever. So it was before that whole Brooklyn thing happened. The Brooklyn Renaissance. And I went to, yeah, I mean, everything from Sheep's Head Bay to Gravesend to Borum Hill. I mean, Bay Ridge. It's, it's such an incredible Crown Heights, such a diverse, amazing uh, borough, especially then. I remember again, uh, there used to be a sign yeah. on the Belt Parkway that announced Brooklyn as America's fourth largest city by itself. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that's no yeah. longer the case. That was in Welcome Back, Cotter. In the, was in that the in the Welcome Back, Cotter sign? Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, mm -hmm. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, so also the Post. Now, you then you sort of migrated over to the New York Post where you wrote some very different kind of stuff. It was more social pages type stuff. 
Yeah. So um, I covered education also. at uh, That was my beat after Brooklyn at the Daily News. And then I actually, I took some time off and I worked at the, I was an editor of a couple local papers here on Long Island. So I went back to local journalism, then to the Post. And at the Post, I did a lot of lifestyle features, these mm -hmm. like sort of one or two page takeout sort of gossipy features about Anna Wintour or whatever, just all different kinds of things. What what uh, what local papers on Long Island did you work at? The Baldwin. I was the editor of the Baldwin Herald, mm -hmm. and I was also at the same time editor of the Oceanside slash Island Park Herald. Week. These are weeklies. 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 Yeah, it was steam, a grind. The steam engine core of journalism. Weekly newspapers. Yeah, it's the best. Uh, it's the. They're the ones that broke the Sancho story that nobody followed up on. By the way, so that's right. No disrespect to local papers. No, no, not for me. Uh, you'd eventually come back to journalism uh, after your time in office, but uh, between between them, uh, your two journalism careers, uh, you had a fairly successful run in politics, uh, by some measures historic. Um, first, um, as a reporter who covered local governments and 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 moved in those circles, I'm sure I know the answer to this. Um, but I'd like to know what pulled you into politics. Why go into the world of campaigning and serving the public? You know, it's a great question because this was, I was never one of those little girls that dreamed of running for office or any of that stuff. I loved covering politics. I loved observing politics, reading books about it, reading the paper. I loved all that. I loved looking at the personality or thinking of the psychology of it all. Mm -hmm. But it all started, it all started with a text uh, from a friend we had kids in school together, and she said, hey, you covered education. Why don't you run for the school board? And I was never, I mean, I went to a few PTA meetings, but I was never one of those super involved PTA people. Um, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to be engaged. Probably won't win because, you know, who the hell am I? Mm. And I ended up running a really good campaign, got some friends together, knocked on a lot of doors, and ended up winning um, pretty, pretty decisively. So... And then, so that was a shock. Um, and I found that I really loved it. I, I loved the winning, the running or the, or the governing. Well, all of it, all of it. But I don't think I would have continued had I not loved actually being on the board and dealing with very thorny issues. I mean, this was a mm. tough time. We had to make some tough decisions that were not popular and like I mean, what? we knew they were the right things. Well, we had to. If anyone who's ever served on a school board would understand, we had two schools that were at either 50% or under 50% capacity. Mm -hmm. And it was just a matter of time before they closed, mm -hmm. uh, before we had, before the board had to close them, the district had to close them. And this is when a tax cap was implemented. So we couldn't just be flagrant with the money. We had to be very smart with the money, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. while the folks in those schools were very unhappy, you know, we had to remember our constituency are all of the taxpayers in the district and we had to be responsible to all of them. Sure. And so we made the tough decision and it turned out to have been a very good decision because the district is in great shape, in good financial shape. Uh, and that was an important early lesson in how, how a hard thing can be the right thing. Mm. And if it's the right thing with the information that you have at the time, then that's what you do. And that's what we did. That's, and it was good. That theme is going to repeat itself in your political career. I'll ask you about that. In Very a much so. Um, yeah. Now, you became the president of the Baldwin School Board, I think. 
which kind of shows the direction you were going. Uh, After that, um, it was a seat on the Nassau County legislature. Now, before we go any further again, I will reveal that I too followed the lore from journalism into politics. Uh, I was more of a, well, I was more of a man behind the man type, uh, you know, working for a guy on the Suffolk County legislature. Uh, and I know, uh-huh. I know from Who? experience, Who was it? uh, Joe Caracciolo, uh, it was oh, around, yeah. around the same time, uh, in the mid nineties. Wow. That's so interesting. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe late nineties. And, um, I know from experience that county politics is, is a real blood sport unto itself in the, in the political, it's its yeah. own animal in the political world. All the fun yeah. trappings of local politics with like just enough money and power and influence to make it, you know, like to the death. So, uh, yeah. so now you're on the Nassau County legislature. Um, good times, yeah. good times there. The politics of it was, uh, very annoying. Um, however, I loved my district like with a passion. I had Freeport, Baldwin, mm. parts of some surrounding communities as well. Little Merrick, Rockville Center, South Hempstead. And I loved my district and I really fought for my district. And, you know, you hear about politicians, I'm fighting for you, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But when, when you really can get something accomplished, where you can really bring your uh, constituents' needs to county government, whether it's just answering questions from constituents about a stop sign or whatever it is, or, you know, repaving roads or improving parks or drainage or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you really feel like, wow, government matters. You know, apart from all of the ridiculous politics and apart from all of the anger and, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you can actually make concrete differences in people's lives that make their lives easier and safer and better. And that is a function of government that often gets lost. Uh, in people's minds. They just think of annoying politicians and people that they hate. They don't think of the fact that if the sewage doesn't run, mm-hmm. you, you can't send your kid to school. If you can't drink the water, you know, everyone's going to get sick. All of these, if the traffic lights aren't working properly, mm-hmm. there will be accidents. And these are just very basic nothing bolts things about municipal government that are incredibly important for the functioning of society. And that was my biggest takeaway from that time. Was there a particular achievement on the legis- as a legislator that you um, that stands out? Yes, and if people in Baldwin are hearing this now, they may be annoyed with me. But because there's this big construction project going on on our main street, which is Grand Avenue, and uh, this is something that uh, I, I definitely had to fight for, and it's almost done, and it's going to be gorgeous, and it's going to give us a chance to finally have a great main street. Uh, and that's something that I'm, you know, shows how long it takes to happen. It's finally yeah. getting completed now. And I see the workers out there. They're doing an amazing job. And this will make a big difference, I think, in the in the lifeblood and the main artery of our community. And I'm very proud of that. All right. You had to fight for it, as you say. Uh, your your campaign for county executive against Jack Martins was certainly scrappy. Uh, are are you, yeah. su- were you Were you surprised by the intensity? No, not at all. No, because... I've covered campaigns and I've been in campaigns and I know what Nassau County is like. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, as a Democrat and a sort of an outsider at that political outsider, Mm -hmm. uh, they were going to do everything they could to keep the power, but it just, you know, just didn't go their way. And I think I fought a pretty good fight. You did. You beat them, of course. Uh, And in so doing, you became the first woman uh, to serve as Nassau County executive. That's history right there for sure. Yeah. 
Um, I'd like to ask you about some of the staff you hired as county executive, uh, including former Long Island Railroad President Helena Williams. Um, yeah. Uh, former New York City Budget Director uh, Mark uh, Page. Mark Page? Yeah. Uh, he served Mark under Mayor, Mayor Bloomberg. It seemed like filling your staff with seasoned political operatives uh, was kind of your thing. Yeah, government, people who know how government works and who aren't overly political was really what I was going for because I think it's politics that got county government into such a mess. I mean, always on a fiscal cliff, mm -hmm. always a deficit, mm -hmm. uh, terrible problems all around. And I thought, you know, not let's not do things just for politics. Let's do let's do good government. And you know, we put a lot. Uh, we got the budget all sorted out. That was a very big deal. We. Um, we did, you know, there had been a history of corruption in Nassau and in some of the towns and villages. Well, not, yeah, in villages as well. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people arrested for various things at various levels of government right before I got there. So Indeed. I thought it was important to put very concrete steps and policies in place to prevent more corruption. So not hiring people who were super involved in politics uh, and not allowing anyone that I hire that I appoint to donate to my campaign hmm. because I wanted to prove to people that I'm not here for myself. I'm here for you. I'm here to serve you. And, uh, and that's what we did. Oh, there were a couple of, uh, things you did along those lines. I, I believe all by, um, executive order, things like uh, taking the county executive's name off of signs at the park, uh, yes. and, uh, and, uh, other things that the, what you just mentioned about the, well, I hate to use the word cronyism, but that's what it is. Uh, political donors. Yeah. Oh, don't, and, don't, uh, don't hesitate using that word. That's exactly why. All I right. Was. Well, you banned cronyism, people who were leaders of local uh, parties uh, and donors to political campaigns were banned from hold, holding executive offices in the town. Uh, that's, that's some good cleaning up the town kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked. It really did. And, and I think we, my administration and I did a good job of, of winning back that trust mm. that had been lost that had really been squandered by so much scandal mm. from so many people. Uh, Remember, that was a time of Skelos and, and yes. Sheldon, uh, uh, Shelly, Shelly Silver, and, you know, it was sure. just on all levels, people were seeing this happening. N Nassau definitely had a bad reputation and I'm uh, sad to say yeah. it was well earned in the moment. Um now, you're a Democrat, uh, at least you ran and served as yeah. a Democrat, uh, but your policies, while mm -hmm. progressive, could hardly be labeled as liberal. Uh, in fact, you took a hard stance against two lefty favorites, marijuana legalization and bail reform. Uh, first, let me say how refreshing it is to have an office holder in an influential position like that, following her conscience before the party line, which is something else you just mentioned before when you were back on the school board about knowing what the people might not like it, but it's the right thing and it's inevitable and, and we're going to do it right. This is a theme that you repeated and that's very refreshing. Um, now let's hear what you were thinking on these issues. First on marijuana reform. So when it came to marijuana, um, my concern was two things. Driving, since there's no testing to drive while high, and kids, making sure that it wouldn't get into the hands of kids. Hmm. Um, so... I convened a bunch of experts. We did a task force with health department, business leaders, uh, education leaders, recovery community leaders, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the findings were, this is probably going to happen. It's probably inevitable. But right now, 
in Nassau County, we're not ready to deal with it. Mm. Um, you know, if there's extra funding that's needed for public safety or for helping people or whatever, we just didn't have the resources. So uh, my stance was we're, we're not ready for this. Now is not the time. So if it's up to the counties, we're going to opt out. Um, as it was finally, when it was finally done, they changed it. The state changed the rule. It wasn't that the counties would co could opt out. Mm -hmm. It was that the towns and the villages could opt out. So the counties really had very little role in this after, when it was finally baked, no pun intended. Uh, ah, you intended that. Uh, how, about bail <laughs> how about bail reform? So that one uh, was a no-brainer. The number one function of government, you know, beyond that other infrastructure stuff that I was talking about is public safety. Public if people safe, don't feel safe in their, they don't feel safe in their communities, going to work, sending their kids to school, opening businesses, whatever, all bets are off. So yeah. I felt that this policy was not going to be good for public safety. And it was all very well for the state to pass it, but it's up to the local municipalities, us with a very big police department to... Mm -hmm have to deal with it. We're the ones with the jail. We're the ones with the police department. Um, and so I felt this is not going to work for, mm -hmm. this is not going to work. This is this, we have to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's where that came from. I just, it's just, you think about what's the function of government. Okay. Number one, keep people safe. This is not going to help keep people safe. And we've seen what's happened with some of these policies. Okay. Now I will say that there did need to be some kind of reform when you know the classic example is this this boy who was in rikers khalif browder i believe mm -hmm. his name was was in rikers for three years for allegedly stealing a backpack nothing was ever proven he was let go and then he killed himself mm -hmm. something's wrong there if he was some rich kid he would have gotten out yes. and that was that and he would still be alive so obviously something needed to be done but I said right from the beginning, this is way too much and it's way too fast. Let's do this in a more sensible way. And I think because Albany had three, you know, every, everything was one party. It was the mm -hmm. governor. It was mm -hmm. the assembly. It was the Senate, all mm -hmm. Democrat. So mm -hmm. they just, instead of going sensibly, they just rammed it through. They got as much done as they possibly could. And we've seen the effects. I mean, we have seen it not so much in Nassau County, but we've definitely seen it in the city. We've seen it around us and it's, mm -hmm. it's not good. Not good. There's always a lot going on in Nassau. Uh, so many hamlets and villages, so many people, uh, so much diversity, <laughs> uh, more uh, urban-like challenges with, with gangs and drugs, uh, plus all the requirements of a, of a sprawling suburb. Uh, and of course, smack dab in the middle of all that, in the middle of your term, COVID. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if, from your perspective, the pandemic perhaps revealed the importance, a new importance of county government. Uh, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it before that people don't really always notice government until the water stops running or the traffic light is broken. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if this crisis perhaps gave even county government a new level of responsibility or a new role to play. 100%. So... The other thing, you know, we talked about the, all the overlapping municipalities, the towns, the villages, the hamlets, the cities, but you know, nobody knows really what does the county do? No, you know, people don't walk around, you know, reading books, thinking of separating out what different branches and levels mm -hmm. of government do. Um, but I think in COVID, as you pointed out, what the county does, what its responsibilities are really came to light. 
first of all, we're the ones with the health department. So doing the contact tracing, getting the information out, uh, keeping track of it all. That was in a really important function. And in Nassau, mm -hmm. we were lucky when I was there. We were the only county of all of New York, 62 counties, to have as health commissioner an infectious disease specialist. So mm -hmm. we are already ahead of the game with that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're the ones with a large crew of ambulance guys, uh, EMTs and ambulances and medics. We're the ones with the biggest police department mm -hmm. who, you know, first responders who had to go out there and deal with people when we didn't know, with sick people, when we didn't know exactly what this thing was. And protocols uh, were we not also, set yet. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, we're the ones with the county morgue. Uh, we had mm -hmm. to, for instance, you know, we were tasked with when, I don't know if people remember this, but when the morgues were overflowing with bodies and the hospitals and the ME just didn't have enough room for them, we had to rent refrigerated trucks. When those weren't enough, our Department of Public Works had to actually build shelving within those refrigerated trucks to increase our capacity. So it was wow. all of our agencies, all of our departments working around the clock to handle this crisis. And another important part of this was not only managing it, but also communicating it. So I did over a hundred press conferences mm -hmm. every day, updating people about what was going on. And I felt that my role wasn't just to give information. It was also to let people know how they could help when we mm. had shortages of PPE, where you could donate, where you could provide food to first responders. Um, and, you know, and also providing a little bit of perspective, like this is terrible. Mm. We're going to get through it. We're going to have a new normal when this is over. We're mm. going to get through this. But this is what we have to do now. Sort of consoler. Yeah. And, and, and like a little bit of, I wanted to give people a little bit of courage and reassurance mm -hmm. in this, in this horrible time. And, uh, we were asking, you know, the government was asking a lot of people at the time. And mm -hmm. then, then as, as, as the, you know, scary part of the crisis was over, we kind of got a handle on what we were dealing with. I was very vocal about reopening and reopening safely, but reopening smartly, really mm -hmm. pushing mm -hmm. for bowling alleys, malls, restaurants, hair salons to be able to open. That was sort of my crusade. Uh, and, you know, why? there was a little friction why? with the state there. Why did you make that and push? I saw what was happening to our economy. I saw what was happening to businesses. I saw what was happening to kids, to students. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that the mental health aspect would be very challenging. Mm -hmm. Because we're humans, we're social animals, we're built to be with other people. And I felt with masks, sanitizing, filters, all these measures that were taken, I felt that we could trust business owners to be able to open re re safely, uh, mm -hmm. to reopen safely if that's mm -hmm. what they wanted to do. Okay. Uh, for, so it was for business purposes, but also just for society to continue to function. Mm -hmm. I thought it was incredibly important. And, and there was some friction with the state because the state was really calling the shots on clamping down. And I we had a lot of conversations with the state. We really advocated hard, uh, I think politely, but hard mm -hmm. to get things reopened. And we had some success there. I, I feel that my advocacy really helped us reopen. You know, I still hear from business owners, restaurants owners, thanking me for, for pushing for them and for, for, for allowing them to function. There seems to be. And perhaps they could have. There seems to be on a couple of occasions, on a couple of issues in your term, friction with Albany. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, Democratic governor, uh, legislature, 
and here you are, a Democrat in Nassau County, which is a rare thing, uh, and you're not just doing what they say. Um, do uh, do you think that that in any way uh, affected your reelection campaign? Honestly, I think it helped. I think I did. I'm not going to well, just speaking politically now, shifting gears and not to toot my own horn. I, in the election, it was a very slender loss mm-hmm. compared to the other folks who were running countywide who lost by a lot. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, people in general, uh, a lot of people saw me, even if they were Republican or independent, mm-hmm. saw me as someone who wasn't towing the party line and sort of begrudgingly said, you know what, she's not so bad. I think I'll support her. So I, I lost by a tiny bit, whereas... Mm-hmm. The poor, so full, you know, people who are running on the same ticket as me did not mm-hmm. fare so well. Uh, you've uh, you've called out the results of that ticket, uh, and as, as you <laughs> Can just I tell did. You how that happened? Yes. No. Can I tell? Yes, so, please. You uh, said Todd Kaminsky kind of made you it. made you lose the race because he liked bail yeah. reform, and and that yeah. was it. So the way that happened, I didn't mean it to sound like oh. Wah, wah, poor me, I'm such a victim. It was more, I was on uh, with Bernie and Sid in the morning. And Bernie said, so, you know, this was after the election, after I had lost. Mm. And he's like, so, you know, was it, you know, do you think Todd Kaminsky was the reason? And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Bill reform was, you know, that was absolutely. And it was more kind of like, just kind of matter of fact and casual. And I went on to say, you know what, that's politics. You win, you lose, you just got to, you got to deal with it. Right. So. I don't know. I feel like a little bad that I said that, but hey, it, I felt that it was true. I mean, it, the bail reform issue was the killer. People can talk about sure. this or that or the other. It was a hundred percent bail reform, and it was an effective issue. And the one thing I'll say about Republicans—it's a unique Nassau, issue for for deciding a race like that, right? I yeah. know, especially especially the thing that frustrated me the most is Nassau County was rated the safest community in America three years in a row. Mm-hmm. For the last three years of my tenure. And I would say mm-hmm. that this is according to US News and World Report. It wasn't just me saying it. So I'm like, so we're doing it right here. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. whatever. That's politics. Well, listen, whatever the reason, despite really excellent ideas like banning cronyism and uh, technological and intelligence driven responses to the heroin crisis, uh, as you just pointed out, these uh, safest community to live awards, uh, even removing the county executive's name from county parks signs. Yeah, uh, and that was a real break with tradition. That yes, is such all a, of it. a died in the wool thing here. And it's like you see they're all back now. All the signs oh, gosh, are back. Yes. I mean, my uh, like, my recycling can, my recycling can from the town has the then public works director's name on it from like 1988. Wow. It's insane. Uh, but anyway, that's hilarious. Uh, unfortunately, Laura, you were one and done. Was was losing an election yeah. a shock? Yeah, yeah, because our polling. I mean, now I'm so so skeptical of polls. Now had me way mm. ahead. So I think I was. I think I on in hindsight, my campaign was probably too nice. I hate mm. to say it because I don't like negative campaigning. But if I had gone more negative, I probably would have done a little better. But I just didn't want to do it. Plus, it's not my nature, and I didn't want to win. If I had to uh, that's be, that's the that's the wrong. Bag. Yeah, it's the wrong time to embrace it. I Canadian. So, you need you need this is county. I know, right? County politics, Laura. Blood I needed sport. to embrace my inner Nassau County Paul, but whatever, I didn't. Um, <clears throat> and you know, I remember I said a lot during my first campaign for county. He's like, I'm not a career politician, mm. and I'm really not. <laughs> yeah. 
So it was, it was surprising. Um, it took me maybe two weeks to kind of come to terms with it. Mm. And I mean, then I started to think, well, you know what? It's a big wide world out there. There's lots of other things to do. And I am, I, I, I don't really have any regrets. All right. Um, what was your takeaway though from your time in government? Um, you know, uh, did it teach you anything? I mean, you served during oh, arguably yeah. the most tumultuous political period in our nation's history. Uh, I mean, I know we had a civil war, but stay tuned. At least uh, in our so, life. Well, at least in our like well, certainly in, in our, our lifetime. Time. Right. Yes. So, yeah. um, so I mean, what was your takeaway from if as a person who first covered government from the outside uh, and then saw it from the most inside inside perspective? Uh, what was your takeaway? My takeaway was, well, you know, I think when you ask me that question, I'm thinking about we had a lot of protests in Nassau County, mm -hmm. even one in front of my house after George Floyd was killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had about, we had more than 300 protests, which I have to, I have to give a huge shout out to the police department and to Commissioner Patrick Ryder for, we were able to construct things and organize things in a way that kept people safe. We didn't see the looting. We didn't see the the violence that mm. we saw in so many other places while allowing people to express their first amendment right to mm. protest, which is God. I want to say it's God given, but it's given in the constitution, a secular mm. document. Right. And so that and COVID, I think were the two biggest crises I, we had to deal with. I had to deal with in my time. Mm. Mm. And my biggest takeaway is when you're in a leadership position, it is so important to trust the people that you appoint and to make sure that you appoint the most competent uh, folks who really understand what it is their job is, whether it's Mark Page in finance, whether it's police, whether it's the health commissioner, whatever it is, you have to be able to delegate, delegate and mm -hmm. trust the people that you appoint. Um, I also have respect, a lot of respect for folks in elected office because I know what it's like. It's not easy. Sometimes, you know, I do a lot of uh, pontificating and punditry now, and sometimes I'm a little hard on them. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because I see the potential of what they could be doing, and I get frustrated that they're not doing it. As somebody who uh, um, so, followed her conscience and logic, does it piss you off when, yeah. when, when they just follow the party line? Yes. And we see that in both parties. Absolutely. We see both, both parties. We've seen it with the Republicans just this week with Matt Gaetz and that whole ouster mm -hmm. of Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it on the Democratic side with the progressives lead, you know, wagging the dog of mm -hmm. my party. Mm -hmm. And if, if folks who are sensible and centrist and can compromise can just call them out and not kowtow, appease, mm -hmm or enable their BS, mm -hmm. it would be so much better for, for politics in general. Agreed. Kowtow. I like that. Um, obviously. Because they know in their heart that it's stupid. It's not like they don't know, you know, that's. And, and so counterproductive. Not, not, not yeah. only still, well, stupid in the largest sense, but in, in smaller sense, counterproductive, they're not going to be able to achieve whatever it is they promised to achieve that got them elected. I mean, it's just all. It's all a kingdom. And it's not good politics. It's not good government or good politics. 
No, and it's not good civics either. Uh, people are watching. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously back to journalism then after you left office. And uh, I should note that while you were still in office, uh, you wrote an excellent article for the New Yorker magazine de- detailing your experiences dealing with uh, COVID's first wave uh, in Nassau. Uh, and then last, just last week, uh, you wrote a column for our own Innovate Long Island about the need for uh, government yes. uh, and industry to come together uh, to battle cyber crime. Um, so yes. uh, first, tell us, uh, and there also you did a radio program uh, in New York City on WABC Radio yeah. and, a, and a podcast. Yeah. Um, so tell us about all these. You, you said it yourself. You're sort of pontificating these days. Um, yeah. Is there a theme, a theme that runs through your, your current journalism? Yeah, so I had a, a year-long project where I did a podcast, a once-weekly podcast for a whole year, and I talked to, uh, it, was, it was mostly about politics, state and local, little local, not as much local, uh, state and national politics, so speaking to everyone from Kellyanne Conway to Melissa DeRosa, who was the secretary for sort of the number two position for Governor Cuomo and authors and reporters and newsmakers. Uh, it was really fun. It was called Cut to the Chase. People can still find it. Mm-hmm. And it was a, this was WABC, you know, a little bit of self-defense. Uh, yeah, this was on your a, w- mm-hmm. Yeah, WABC. So there was the podcast and then there was the radio show with the same name. Mm-hmm. And I would just interview people about things I found interesting. In fact, I really found myself fascinated with AI, which is what led to this article in Innovate Long Island that was just published. Thank so, you. So, um, yeah, it's of course. And I also do some TV. You know, whenever I'm invited, I'll, I'll go on and talk about whatever. And the the fun thing is, is you know, I did a lot of media, obviously, as county exec, mm-hmm. um, the press conferences and interviews and all of that. Uh, never shy. Never media shy. Uh, but that yeah. all that radio experience, especially during COVID, I was in, did a lot of radio as county exec. It made me very comfortable behind mm. the mic, and I really, I really I think it's my favorite medium, podcasting and radio. I think it's a very, the much more intimate medium than television. Yes, I think we can really draw people into real conversations. I love listening to podcasts. I love radio. And uh, I, I believe it allows a little. It, I, it allows a little room for the imagination, unlike uh, visual and sound mediums uh, media that give you everything uh this is exactly. it's, it's like watching a silent film right you need to add in a little bit yourself um that's right and, uh it does tend to draw the audience in especially if the people have nice voices like you um so oh, i thank you laura curran uh whatever you're doing and whatever you do next there's no doubt you're gonna you're gonna do it well um thank you so much for sharing all of this today you are truly the best thank you thanks for having me greg this was fun uh, before you go, we're going to squeeze in a quick round of the Spark Psychoanalysis game, uh, wherein we attempt to learn what <laughs> truly governs the minds of our master innovators. Uh, I have these two envelopes here marked, which is your favorite and why, and word association. And you get to choose what we play, my Canadian-American friend. So what will it be, eh? Hey, well, I think word association might be a little too revealing of the inner mind. So I'm going to go with what's your favorite. Okay, well, just so you know, revealing of the inner mind is point, but okay. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll go, we'll go with which is your favorite and why with Laura Curran. Here we go. Uh, the favorite story you covered or wrote for the Daily News? Uh, 
So there's so much. What did I love doing? You know what was fascinating? Um, flying out to San Diego to cover the Heavens. Do you remember that cult murder called Heaven's Gate? Heaven's Gate, absolutely. Where Yes. So that was in, yeah, like Del Mar or something like that in San Diego. So mm-hmm. I went out to cover that. And it was fascinating. I mean, all these people in their Nikes drinking the poison. And, yeah. And, and, and I'll, you know, I'm going to reveal something kind of personal. So I think, I think I you just did, Laura. Brother, well, something else. I had a brother who uh, was in Southern California, in San Diego, who went missing several years earlier. Never found him. He's still gone. Oh. And I was, I, when I, I, I when I looked at the manifest and the, the names of the people, of course, the first thing I looked for was his name. It wasn't there, mm-hmm. but it just really hit personally in that way. That sounds like the start of a novel or screenplay. Perhaps your next, perhaps your next yeah. project. Those things can be very cathartic, yeah. you know, when they have that personal. Life. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, here That's we go. Fa- favorite story you wrote or covered for the post? Uh, uh, the Anna Wintour one was really fun. I mean, it was a bitchy, gossipy. I didn't actually speak to the woman, mm-hmm. but I spoke to a lot of people who knew her. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is back around the turn of the century, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a really fun piece to report. And and it was a really fun piece to write, and I got I got a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, oh, I, about it. I bet you did. Uh, all right, your favorite midnight snack. My favorite midnight snack would have to be a rice cake. Okay, this is very elaborate. A rice cake with coconut oil, peanut butter, and sliced banana. You, you do all that at midnight? Yeah, if I'm hungry. Yeah, okay. something a little sweet. Well, crunchy's got it salty, all. Right, yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, and it has to be uh, crunchy peanut butter. Oh, I'm with you on that. I like the crunchy peanut butter. Uh, I like all peanut butter. I'm not going to lie. Uh, favorite class at Sarah Lawrence College. Rush. I just took this great class in Russian literature. Uh, Turgenev, Tolstoy, Gogol, Dostoevsky. Those guys, man. I I want to go back and read them all. Actually. Yeah, Tolstoy. Uh, Dostoevsky. Such a great class. Good for a laugh. Yeah. Uh, and the right. average Turgenev is good. And I, I, that was like one of the first classes where I was like, hey, wait. And I would write my papers. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I can actually write. I can actually put words together in a way that makes sense. It was a Russian literature it, class it, that taught you you could write well in English? I mean, I could write. But, but this is where I like, this is exciting. And my words are actually, like, I was actually proud of what I was writing. Ah, was you you discovered that you could put passion into your, into your writing. Yes, and the Russians. I mean, who's more passionate than those Russian Nobody. authors? Oh Nobody my God, ever. such so much passion. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I, we may have mentioned it. I'm sure we did. But your favorite singular accomplishment as Nassau County Executive? I would say there's. It's a twin. It's a twin one. It's leading through COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I truly believe that the measures we took saved lives and the safest community in America for three years in a row. I feel. Okay. You know, we talk about public safety being the most important function. I feel like we, we, we hit it out of the park. All right. Uh, Mineola, of course, is Nassau's county seat. And uh, you've obviously spent loads of time there. Your favorite breakfast or lunch joint in or around Mineola? I really love the station diner by the Mineola train station. You can mm-hmm. walk to it from the county seat. It's just a good old-fashioned greasy spoon. Nothing fancy, good coffee, and great service. Awesome. Uh, my best kind of favorite kind of recommendation. Uh, yeah. Your favorite radio show or podcast guest. Oh, 
I have to say, uh, gosh, there are so many that were so good. I really loved having um, Melissa DeRosa on. Mm-hmm. She was good. Uh, I really loved having this guy named Tim Miller from The Bulwark. If anyone knows The Bulwark, Tim Miller is funny. He's smart. He's this former Republican operative mm-hmm. who has become uh, very, <laughs> very critical of his own party mm-hmm. in a way that's smart and amusing. That was a good one. Um, but you know, oh, the very first, you know, the very first one I had was also one of my favorites. His name was Gus Garcia Roberts, a former Newsday reporter who wrote a book about former police chief in Suffolk, James Burke, who mm-hmm. was arrested and put mm-hmm. in jail. Sure. And you know, people thought he was involved in Gilgo. It turned out, you know, he no, wasn't. It was this other guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was a really fun first podcast and a really good interview, and uh, a great look at Long Island corruption historical with good awesome uh your favorite board position and for the record laura is an active member of the boards of mount sinai south nassau hospital uh the safe center of long island the asian american institute for research and engagement and riv she sits on all those so risk capital the first ones you mentioned were nonprofit boards which are very satisfying um, mm-hmm. and i very much enjoy my work on those so this is a little bit of irony for the, for your audience. Uh, Riv Capital is a cannabis company, so I am on their board, <laughs> and but and lobbying think, hard for marijuana legalization. <laughs> so well, see the thing is, it's legal, right? So yeah. it's here, yeah. and you know I want to make sure that we're guiding the company in a way that it can be successful, and mm. also with an emphasis on public safety since it's here. So. It's one of the ironies of life, but it's uh, it's really it's a really interesting space. It's a really interesting business, mm-hmm. um, and it you know I think my government insight is also helpful. I, I think that is another tremendous example of your your inner pragmatism. I mean, you mm-hmm. have a passionate feeling about something, and you state it. You do what you can within the confines of the rules of whatever game you're playing, and then mm-hmm. you deal with what's in front of you in the most constructive and progressive way you can. Uh, that's you in a nutshell. Uh, Mm -hmm. Last one, uh, you've lived all around the world, but you stayed in Nassau. What do you love most about Nassau County? I love my community. I love Baldwin. Um, You know, my kid, my, I have one left in the schools here. I have a real passion for my community. Mm -hmm. I love my neighbors. Um, The other thing I love about Long Island is the, proximity of nature you know i'm right by a bunch of parks Mm. even just walking my dog at night there's Mm. trees there's squirrels there's bunny rabbits i'd love being able to connect with nature in suburbia well there you have it Uh, laura curran you are a champion of the people and of nature uh and a brilliant (laughs) and a brilliant innovator and you're a terrific podcast guest thank you so much for coming on the show today greg you're so kind thank you very much She is the former Nassau County executive with impressive journalism chops. I am the editor over at InnovateLI.com, and this is Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast. Sincerest thanks, as always, to Innovate Long Island President Marlene McDonnell, intrepid man in the chair Arthur Germain, podcast producer and head honcho of Brand Telling, the ace marketing boutique that sponsors this fantastic show. And of course, thank you, dear listeners, for your time, your ears, and your minds. Back soon with another great conversation from the innovation economy's front lines. Until then, pay attention to county politics. They're important. And keep on innovating.
You've been listening to Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast with host Gregory Zeller. To recommend a guest, please contact us at editor at innovateli.com. And to learn how you can create your own podcast, share your story, and otherwise become the go-to brand for customers in your industry, please visit our talented partner and generous sponsor at innovation.brandtelling.com.